0: Howard Garfinkel hit the jackpot from the jump with this five-star basketball camp. The legendary coaches like Hubie Brown, Chuck Daly, and Bobby Knight were there from the very start. But to truly make an imprint in Garf's mind, it came down to the quality of players who were coming to the camp to showcase their talent. When that first camp, I mean, three guys played in the NBA. Again, he had a recruiting service, the HSBI. It was good for business. Those players were first evaluated and ranked based on their potential at a five-star hallmark. The Draft. In this episode, we'll dive into three untold stories from the five-star draft, including the camp's first true phenom, Moses Malone.
1: Moses Malone dominated and nobody even knew
0: The rare origin story of how Mike really became Air Jordan. And I
2: said, I think I saw the best six-foot, four-inch high school player I've ever seen.
0: And I'll explain how a five-foot, three-point guard from Baltimore named Muggsy Bogues surprised everyone at the camp, even Garth. Coach of hey, if I can't pick who I want, we all going home. With help from some legendary voices and five-star historian Ali Danois, I'll tell you how a camp in the Northeast turned into the place where basketball royalty flocked to find out how they stacked up against the best of the best. I am Tate Frazier. Welcome to the world of five-star.
1: You can't look at the ball. You can't look at the look
0: Now I'm sure you're familiar with the term five-star. Whether it's an Uber rating, a hotel, a Cracker Barrel employee, five-star is everywhere. Regardless of your specific reference point, it's simply of the best quality. And what you now know is where that ranking system was born and popularized, the five-star basketball camp. We use this term nowadays when evaluating prospects and recruiting classes from all the top programs, not just in basketball, but in football and other prep sports as well. If you follow recruiting, I know you've heard something like this before. There's Zion Williamson.
1: He's a five-star recruit who's going to do. The players are rated from one to five stars, five being the best. And once a player gets a bad rating, it's hard for him to overcome it.
0: When Howard Garfinkel created the HSBI report in 1965, he rated players as having either major college or small college potential, just two categories. But that wasn't good enough. So he used HSBI subscriber John Wooden's UCLA teams as a measuring stick.
3: Some are bigger, stronger, faster, and there's more to it than, than knowing the fundamentals. They must be able to properly execute them at the right time and to do it quickly.
0: And he decided to invent his own ranking system. Here's how Garf broke it down. He thought that any kid who could contribute to a D3 team was a one-star player. A good division two or small division one player got two stars. The big time division one programs the NCAA tournament teams, Garf broke them into three categories. Colleges like Yale were low major. Players who could go there and contribute were three stars. Then there was a level between Yale and UCLA, and those kids got four stars. The best big time players, kids who could contribute to a top 20 division one team, got the coveted five stars. Which brings us to our first major discovery at Five Star, when an unknown big man from the country showed Garf he should be playing in the pros. In the summer of 1973, the U.S. had just pulled out of the Vietnam War.
1: we have all worked and prayed for.
0: And Roberta Flax, Killing Me Softly, was the longest-running number one single. Just seven years after the camp's inception, the first true five-star to attend came in the form of a shy six-foot-ten center from rural Petersburg, Virginia. And his nickname was Mumbles. No, I didn't make that up. Just listen to Hubie Brown tell the legend of Moses to the five-star camp in 1995.
4: Ass and did it without even talking.
0: In his junior and senior years of high school, Moses Malone's team was 50-0, winning back-to-back state championships. As you can imagine, this drew a lot of attention, especially from the top coaches in the region, like Lefty Drizell at Maryland and Stormin Norman Sloan at NC State. One of Lefty's assistants at Maryland, Coach George Ravlin.
2: He didn't play against the best
1: talent. And so when he would get the five-star, this was like a final exam for him.
0: So here's the thing, Moses had never played against anyone over six foot two in a small town. So his high school coach wanted to take him up to Honesdale, Pennsylvania, to see how he would fare against the best big men in the country. Five-star co-founder, Will Klein.
4: In the week that he attended,
0: the shortest
4: center on any team was named Miss Savages. He was 6'9", he played at St. John's, and so on, the rest of the guys were 6'10", 6'11". And this big 6'10", 210 pound kid gets out of the car. And little do we know, he's gonna set scoring, rebounding, and block shot records that nobody ever, ever even came close to in one week.
0: After the coaches watched all the players run through a tryout, Moses immediately passed the eye test but that wasn't enough to solidify him as a can't-miss prospect. After all, this was a team game, so Moses needed a team. First things first, a five-star hallmark, the draft. Let me tell you how the five-star draft would go down. 12 coaches would pick a number out of a hat, and this would be your typical snake-style draft. Think fantasy football, one through 12, 12 to one, and back and forth until all the players were off the board. In the early years of Five Star, they would start with the big men, the centers, followed by point guards, then shooting guards and wings. You get the point. Garf, being the prideful scout that he was, always had a very particular, some might say biased way, about what players should go where. The coach with the number one pick that week? Richie Patino's old high school coach, Tom McQuarrie, who happened to be in the dark about Moses Malone.
4: I really had not heard of Moses because he came from rural Virginia, but everybody was telling me how good he is. And when I wound up picking the first pick, they almost <laughs> broke my arm to make sure I picked him, and I did. He got the number one pick. He says, I'll take uh, Moses Malone, you know, the Senators and I'm going to bed. Tom Kachowski, you picked the rest of my guys.
0: Moses would impress the early five-star fixtures, like former Virginia head coach who you just heard from, Pete Gillen. Future NBA coach Mike Fratello. He was just a special player. Of course, Hubie Brown. He ran like the wind. And legendary commentator for over forty years, Dick Vitale.
3: Garf, would go on about that. Oh man, you should see Moses' rebound. He could' hit glass either. He's the Windex man. Garf used to help me with those terms I used on TV. I got credit when they came to the Garf.
0: And of course, Coach George Raveling.
3: He would hit the
2: floor and be back up in a cowboy second.
0: On a gloomy afternoon at Five Star, Moses would face his biggest challenge of the week. Future Georgetown center and elite shot blocker, Tommy Skates.
4: There was one play I remember, Tommy Skates, who was a really a mountain of a man. 6'10", probably 260, cut like a block of granite and Moses went up to uh, dunk the ball, and Skates got his hand up underneath the ball as if he were gonna block it. Well, the ball, the hand, the wrist, (laughs) all went in the rim. (laughs) Moses just was so strong, he was able to push Skates' hand all the way down into the rim.
0: During a stormy week at the camp, it was hard at times to determine what was thunder and what was Moses dominating the competition? They won the whole season. They won the player. They were undefeated. And I don't know if anybody
4: got close to
0: him. In fact, one of Garf's rave reviews became legendary as he announced the awards at the end of the week.
4: The only uh, undefeated, 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 untied, untied and the unscored unscored team in the history of the camp.
0: camp. Here's Garf reflecting on Moses' dominance at the camp. Moses spoke
5: with his talent on the court. He spoke with his intensity with his attention span, which was excellent. But Moses came and totally dominated the camp in every department, uh, in the games, at stations. He even dominated the lectures, because all the coaches would pull him out.
0: Word started spreading, proving to his high school coach that there was zero doubt his ability would translate to any court in the country. And while Will Klein was heading out to run a few errands, he just so happened to overhear a conversation between the Maryland coaches he would never forget. And the
4: coaches are George Raveling and Lefty Drizzell. And they have just seen Moses Malone play in a game. They don't see me. And they're walking down the hill and Raveling is saying, I can't believe what I just saw. Every time a shot goes up, all I hear is
0: whoosh, whoosh. That's Moses blocking the shot out to midcourt. In Lefty's mind, Moses had the potential to be the next Luau Cinder. And that was really fitting. Isn't that right, Ali?
1: Interestingly enough, you know, Lefty Drizel made this promise that he was going to turn Maryland into the UCLA of the East. George Raveling was the recruiting coordinator and the assistant to Lefty Drizel. So Moses was actually at the Maryland campus in College Park for about a week. After a lengthy recruiting process,
0: Lefty eventually got a commitment from Moses in the summer of 1974. But with this family's financial future in mind, he changed his mind
4: and signed in the ABA with the Utah Jazz and then started an incredible career.
0: Before Kobe and KG and Dwight Howard, Moses became the first high schooler to go straight to the pros and became the player who helped bring 5-star to the promised land. Which makes sense, since Garf always insisted Moses was the only player too good to be at 5-star. His story at the camp would be told for years and years to come. So you might be asking yourself, how does a camp in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, filled with coaches from the Northeast, attract the best center in Virginia? Let's bring back five-star historian Ali Danwa to help break down the camp's early expansion.
1: The paradigm shift came into play when a high school coach from Washington, D.C. by the name of John Thompson started bringing his players. That was the beginning of the expansion of Five Star.
0: In addition to the
1: powerhouses
0: of Big John Thompson at St. Anthony's and Morgan Wooten at DeMatha High School, the reach of Garf's camp continued to move south down I-95. So in 1976, Garf and Will had to expand and move the camp to Robert Morris College in Moon Township, Pennsylvania. With more space available, Garf turned to two of his five-star fixtures, now on staff together at Duke. The goal was to bring in talent south of the Mason-Dixon line, so they turned to a coach who had literally just won the North Carolina High School State Championship, Dave Odom.
4: I say, job well done to the team. They leave, I go into my office, and I close the door behind me, and I sit down just to catch a breath, and I no sooner sit down at my desk than there was a knock on the door. And I gruffly said, come in. (laughs) And who was to walk in except Chuck Daly and Hubie Brown. They were two assistants at Duke under Vic Bubas at the time.
0: Before Odom was Tim Duncan's coach at Wake Forest, he was the head coach at Durham High School and a key piece in Garth's Southern expansion.
4: One of the conditions on hiring me was that I got the best players out of the state to come to Five Star, which they'd never been able
0: to do. The camp was becoming a proving ground, not just for players from the Northeast, but the entire Atlantic coast and moving into the Midwest. Future stars like Jim and John Paxson, Kiki Vandeweghe, and Jeff Rulin in 1976, Mark Aguirre and Kelly Tripuka in 1977, and then one of the greatest point guards ever, Isaiah Thomas, and the human highlight film, Dominique Wilkins, came to the camp in 1978. With this kind of talent, it's easy to see why college basketball was thriving. The 1979 title game with Magic and Bird broke TV ratings records with 40 million people watching, transforming the NCAA tournament into what is now known as March Madness.
1: If we think about this in this context, right, Gar starts the camp in 1966, that's akin to like when Rapper's Delight came out. By the time Michael Jordan shows up in 1980, Five Star is Illmatic.
0: But none of these stars were brighter than the next hidden gem to be revealed in the summer of 1980.
5: I don't think there were 10 people outside the state of North Carolina who had ever heard of Michael Jordan.
4: One day in this camp, Michael Jordan exploded onto the scene. And then from there, it's nothing but history. 1980 was uh, a time where a diamond in the rough could slip through that last week in Pittsburgh really put him on a springboard to fame, which he has never let go of. It just keeps going. Are
1: you Nervous? No. You should be.
0: <laughs> Michael Jordan. A mere mention of the name gives me goosebumps and conjures up flashes of basketball at the highest level. I've spent most of my life hearing stories of Jordan's legendary folklore. From hitting the shot in the 1982 title game to his 2-3 piece with the Bulls, or even saving the Looney Tunes in Space Jam, which I may or may not have thought was real at the time. What you're about to hear is one of the most unknown stories in his basketball journey. After he proved to his own high school coach that he was good enough to make the varsity team, Jordan had to prove to the world he was one of the top prospects in the country, a list he hadn't even been considered for before the summer of 1980. One of the men responsible for helping put Mike on the map, Roy Williams.
2: We just knew he, he was a prospect, period. The end. We knew he was a prospect.
0: Roy Williams was far from the Hall of Famer we all know now. Instead, he was a restricted earnings coach on Dean Smith's staff, driving around the state of North Carolina, selling UNC basketball calendars. As a part-time employee, this was a way for coaches to make some quick cash on the side. But that wasn't all you were up to,
2: right, coach? It was not just driving around and looking at parks and seeing who was playing or anything. It was a concerted and organized effort on uh, my part and Eddie Foger's part of trying to call
0: and see if we could get kids to come to our summer camp. At this point in time, coaches weren't going to sleep at recruits' houses like Vic Bubas. Most of it was done by inviting top players to the school's official camp.
2: We had gotten a call during that high school season from the athletic director at Hanover County Schools and told us about a kid he
0: thought had a chance. His name was Mike Jordan. So Carolina's top assistant coach, Bill Guthridge, Went down to Wilmington to watch Jordan play. He reported back to the staff that it wasn't a great game to evaluate, but he had just seen a really athletic kid that took a lot of jump shots, and that was enough.
2: I made a call to the high school and try to see if uh, we
0: get Mike Jordan to come to North Carolina's camp. As I mentioned before, Jordan was cut from his Laney High School team in favor of six foot seven Leroy Smith. Legend has it Michael's mother Dolores shook salt in his shoes to preserve her son's basketball dreams. And sure enough, Mike Jordan shot up four inches just in time for his junior season. The first place he showed off his new growth spurt outside of Wilmington was at Appalachian State's basketball camp in the summer of 1978. Here's the head coach at App State during this time, another five-star fixture, Bobby Crimmins.
2: These kids got
5: out of a van. Uh, They threw some single dollars on the table. I don't know, they were trying to pay the camp fee with single dollars, it was it was a mess. But one of those kids was Michael
0: Jordan. The next stop for young Mike Jordan was with Garf's old friend, Dean Smith, who had the whole Laney High School team attend North Carolina's basketball camp. Here's Carolina assistant coach Eddie Fogler to tell you his first impression of Mike Jordan.
4: One of my responsibilities were the gyms were open, the balls were ready, the lights were on. And I walked in and it was before the actual camp started. There was a little pickup game going on. And this skinny 6'4", 6'5", 175 five, hundred and seventy-five-pound kid had his tongue hanging out of his mouth dunking.
2: So when we sat down to dinner, Eddie Foger said, You see anybody that you really liked? And I said, I think I saw the best six foot four-inch high school player I've ever seen. By the end of that week at camp, I was going out after the camp with the coaches. And Pop Herring was Michael's high school coach who was working our camp. And every night I'm bragging to Pop about, oh gosh, we want him, we love him, blah, blah, blah. And one night Pop said, well, he's going to another camp, but we don't know which one to choose five star camp or BC camp in Milledgeville, Georgia.
0: Back then, there were two summer basketball camp options. Today, there's an entire AAU circuit. On one hand, BC camp was known more as a showcase of scrimmages, with Larry Bird being their most notable camper. On the other hand, well, I'll let Garf tell you about Five Star.
5: Five Star has never varied for 10 seconds in its concept, which is teaching.
0: With that in mind, what'd you tell him, Roy?
2: And I told Pop, I said, if he were my son, I would send him to Five Star.
0: Meanwhile, Mike was doing his own research. He asked his sweet mate at Granville Towers that week, Buzz Peterson, about his summer camp options.
1: He said, you going anywhere else? I said, yeah, I'm going to Five Star. He said, yeah, I've heard of Five Star. How'd you get in? And I said, Michael, I said, You're, my high school coach, you know, made some phone calls. You know, it's, it's one of the best camps in the country. He says, I want to go to that camp. I said, well, I'm sure if you ask the coaches, they'll get you in.
0: As serendipity would have it, Garf's right-hand man, Tom Kanchowski, who he insisted was... The greatest mind in the history of basketball. ...called to ask Roy Williams about a rangy athletic prospect on his radar. I said, Tommy... There's
2: going to be a surprise there because Michael Jordan is coming and he is fantastic. He said, uh, Mike Jordan? said, yeah, Mike Jordan. And uh, he said, how fantastic? And I said, Tom, just understand, he's going to be one of the best players in the camp.
0: All the stars aligned and it was official. Mike Jordan was making the trip to five-star basketball camp. And to Dean Smith's benefit and the rest of the Carolina coaches, the camp was now three weeks instead of one and Jordan was slated to attend the week known as Pit 2. You see, week one was considered the showcase week. It featured top juniors from the Northeast like number one prospect Patrick Ewing and the number one player in New York City, Chris Mullen. Uncertain of how the newly 6'4'' Jordan would fare, his coaches sent him to the second week, a.k.a. Pittsburgh 2. But don't get me wrong, there was plenty of top talent to test a young Jordan. Here's coach Mike Fratello to tell you his first impression of Jordan. He looked like a
4: young colt, you know, with those long legs and the strides. And you said, like, wow, he's going to really be an interesting athlete.
0: The upcoming head coach at Pitt 2, Dave Odom, happened to be coaching less than 100 miles from Jordan's High School at East Carolina University. Coach Odom was responsible for setting up this week's five-star draft.
4: The draft would usually go to 2 in the morning.
0: The draft room this particular summer featured a list of top-flight coaches, Ralph Willard, Rick Pitino, Brendan Malone, just to name a few. Unlike Moses, though, Michael didn't have a reputation at this point in time, and he definitely wasn't supposed to be the best shooting guard in the camp.
4: And Brendan that year, picked number one.
0: Brendan Malone was an assistant coach for Chuck Daly's Bad Boy Pistons teams, and his son Mike Malone currently coaches the Denver Nuggets. Coach Malone was known for always being able to get a top pick in the draft, but his good luck almost ran out as an unfortunate turn of events forced him to miss this year's draft. Here's the most honest man in the gym, Tom Kunchauski, to tell you how it all went down.
3: Brendan Malone's wife, Maureen, had a motorbike accident. She was okay, but it was like a day and a half in between the sessions and Brendan wanted to go home to see. He asked me to draft his
0: team. The draft this year revolved around a highly touted dynamic duo from Wichita, Kansas. Greg
3: seven-one white kid from Cape and Mount Carmel High School who went to Kansas and ended up playing for the Pacers for many years. And
0: Aubrey Sherrod.
3: From Wichita Heights High School. Lefty about 6'3". People considered him the top shooting guard prospect in that camp.
0: The duo of Dryling and Sherrod dominated the five-star camp together the year before, and they played for Coach Brendan Malone. Don't take my word for it, though. Here's Aubrey Sherrod.
3: Dryling at the time, really was the top high school player in the country, him and Patrick Ewing.
0: With the draft order set, it looked like Brendan Malone's version of running it back with Dryling and Sherrod was all but a lock. First, he picked Dryling. But when it came to picking the guards, Konchowski had his home plan.
3: Well the next morning he comes down, flies back in, and he's walking down to the dining hall. He says, Show me the team you drafted for me. So you took Dryling? Yes. You took Sherrod, he said no. He said, Who do you take? Mike Jordan. And his his response was, Who the F is that?
2: Brendan ripped him and said, who is this Mike Jordan? You could have taken Aubrey Sherrod. You could have taken somebody else. And Tommy Konczowski says, just give it a chance. I think you'll
0: like it. But seriously, Tom, why'd you take Mike Jordan? Because I saw him in tryouts. Needless to say, Brendan Malone and the rest of the five-star camp was about to find out on a rainy day at Robert Morris.
4: In that camp, I remember, you know, Michael Jordan coming, but nobody knew much about him. They heard he was a good player. When he got there, he just, you know, was, was unbelievable. Took over the camp, was dominating. He was always zeroed in, you know what I mean? He, he, he drilled you with his eyes. He was so focused.
0: That's Pete Gillen, an assistant for Digger Phelps in Notre Dame at the time, who was teaching proper shooting form to Jordan's group indoors. Here's camp head coach Dave Odom.
4: The first thing that I noticed about him, other than the obvious being his combination athleticism and skill, was he had no fear Meaning, like, Len Bias, for instance. I mean, that didn't
0: mean anything to him. Here's Aubrey Sherrod explaining the arrival of Jordan from a fellow camper perspective.
1: You can just always sense how Micah was very competitive in practice. And you just kind of picked up off that. Either you get picked up or, honestly, you just get embarrassed.
0: A lot of players in Pit Two saw Jordan's competitive ways. Legend has it, in one game, he scored 40 points in a 20-minute stretch. Pit 2 officially turned into the Mike Jordan Show, or so the story goes. Bottom line, Brandon
3: Moore wins the championship again, and the rest is history.
0: Here's Tom to break down all the accolades Jordan collected that week.
3: He won the one-on-one. He was the leading scorer for the week, and he was the MVP of the Orange-White Classic, the All-Star Game.
0: There were five
2: awards. He won all five of them.
0: Jordan's sweep of awards at Pit 2 confirmed Tom and Garth's suspicions. Now he was on a new mission, to negotiate a way to keep Mike Jordan in camp another week, solidifying Five Star as the place that officially put him on the map. So naturally, he had to talk to Roy Williams. They said, you
2: think we can get him to stay a second week? And I said, I don't know, but his family doesn't want to do that.
0: The way Five Star worked, the best players received free tuition at the camp, but worked off their fee as waiters. Here's Tom Kanchowski to break down the waiter structure.
3: There will be 36 camper workers each session. 12 would come and set up the tables, 12 would bring out the trays, and the other 12 would clean up the tables. And in exchange for doing that, they'd get two weeks for the cost of one.
0: Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Well, that's what the camp was known for. Here's how a negotiation with Garf would usually go down. If you three weeks for half price All right. next summer. I'll call you during the winter. You think
5: about, you know, if you want the two or the three. Three would mean the next, I don't want you three weeks in a row. It's
0: too yeah. hard. This is quite a contrast compared to the treatment of elite recruits we see today, especially on the AAU scene. Here to explain, former five-star camper and two-time national champion at Duke, Grand Hill.
4: The elite players, you were on scholarship, and so it was an honor to be on scholarship. You know, And part of it was you had to serve the meals. And you'd serve meals, you'd clean up, you'd wash down the tables, discard everybody's stuff. You were exalted and put on a pedestal if you were invited to be a server.
0: Just as Jordan had found his footing at five-star, Pitt three would serve up another challenge with the arrival of one of the top sophomores in the country, Maryland's future prize recruit, Lenny Bias. But at this point in time, the Terps were all over the emerging Jordan, especially head coach Lefty Giselle, of course.
1: They had fallen in love with Michael. And Michael and I were talking one day. He says, Buzz, everywhere I go, I said, watch this, you know what? So, you know, he breaks and goes off his group. I'm with my group. I look over there, and there's like three of them there knocking people down.
4: I can remember lefty Drizell trying to talk to him after a game and, and almost tripped down on three steps. He was so excited to go try to, which we were not supposed to do, Coach Drizell.
0: But pit three wasn't all smooth sailing for Jordan. A nagging ankle injury forced him to miss four of the eight regular season games. But luckily for him, they made up a new rule.
3: That's when five-star put in the rule to qualified to play in the All-Star game, you had to play in 50% of the games, which he made, and he was the MVP of the All-Star game for the second week in a row. He was the best player
0: in camp. With seven awards over his two weeks at Five Star, Jordan had proven his five-plus status to Garfinkel. Now he was in the conversation as one of the best prospects in the country, exactly what Jordan came to the camp to prove, and it was something not even in the realm of possibility just a few months earlier. Again, nobody knew who Mike Jordan was. So much so that Garf was already making phone calls on his behalf.
3: And Howie Garfinkel, when he saw him the first time, his first game, went to little office at Robert Morris and called Dave Kreider. who used to do the high school section for Street & Smith.
0: Dave Kreider was the editor of the Street & Smith yearbook, which was the preeminent publication that listed the top 650 high school prospects in the country. Garfico called him and told him matter-of-factly that Street & Smith's rankings would have no credibility if Jordan wasn't listed.
3: And Dave Kreider said, who? Not only won't he be on the first team, but we had to uh, get all the copies to the printer 10 days ago. He wasn't even in the magazine.
2: I remember getting that Street & Smith magazine that year, and there had, 5 I think it was 500 guys listed, and Michael
0: was not listed. Despite not being listed in Street & Smith, the word had gotten out on Mike Jordan. So all of a sudden, Dean Smith found himself recruiting against the likes of South Carolina, NC State, and Lefty to at Maryland, all looking for Jordan's signature on a letter of intent.
1: When Michael's dad picked him up, they stopped in College Park, and they did an unofficial visit at the Maryland on the way back home
0: this wasn't good news for Roy
2: Williams. Because Garf said Roy Williams called us and then Roy Williams talked about Michael and told Michael he should come to to our camp. And you know, Garf gave me credit for years. Coach Smith said, why would you tell him to go to Five Star? Why didn't you just tell him he didn't need to go anywhere? (laughs) I said, said, coach, that was not a choice. It was either going to be A or B.
0: Fortunately for North Carolina, they had nothing to worry about. No team had the personal touch and relationship that Roy Williams had with the Jordan family, especially Michael's father.
2: Those parents were unbelievable. I mean, I even had in my home, a wood stove that Michael Jordan's dad built me. We talked earlier about when I was selling calendars, Mr. Jordan in Wilmington area knew so many people and Mrs. Jordan working at the bank. And so it was a family thing. If you thought you were going to get Michael to say he wanted to go to your school without having mom and dad on your side, you
0: had no chance. Jordan went on to hit the shot over his fellow five-star alum, Patrick Ewing's Georgetown team in the 1982 national title game. From that point on, with Jordan and Ewing becoming stars in their own right, it was no secret that Garf's camp was officially the place to be in basketball. There are so many things about MJ's five-star story that underscore the novelty of the camp. From the competition, to budding rivalries and recruiting implications, to the top players in the country, serving food on scholarship in the dining hall. Like both Moses and Michael, our third and final discovery story revolves around the five-star draft. This story starts when Dunbar High School head coach Bob Wade decided to drive a van of his talented future NBA players from Baltimore up to Moon Township, Pennsylvania.
5: We had the likings of the late Reggie Lewis, may rest in peace, went on and played for the Boston Celtics, David Wingate, played him for Philly as well as 15 years in the league. And of course, Reggie Williams. But it was so much talent that came through there. That.
0: that team featured a five-foot-three phenom point guard who Garf once called the greatest peanuts since Planters. And his name was Tyrone Bogues. But everybody just called him Muggsy.
5: We was fortunate enough to win, of course, 59 games and number one in the nation. So we was blessed to have a coach like Coach Wade because he had to match a lot of egos.
0: What seemed like a normal week hit the fan real quick during the draft, when Bob Wade got the first pick. Which means he's going to get the best point on and the weakest center. Remember, Garf and Tom had a very particular view on how the draft should go down based on their scouting. And of course, Bob Wade picked his guy. Muggsy Bogues. Oh, not, I'm, you know, I'm sitting there watching. I, don't, I never say much. <laughs> right, whatever you say. But that pick didn't sit so well with Garth. I said, Whoa, whoa, timeout. Bob, you can't do that. This
4: kid's five foot three. I know he plays for you, but he's not on Tom's list. He's not on the 10. I'm, I'm vetoing his pick. That's when it got interesting. You've got a weak point guard now, and you're going to get the worst center. It's not fair. It's not right. But 10 better guards than him in the tryout. And he said, Well, if I can't have Muggsy Bugs, I'm going home. I said, well, if that's the way you feel about it, good luck to you. Have a great week. I walk out so upset.
0: There's a reason why Garf was so upset, right, Muggsy? Well, Coach, he explained it to me,
5: and uh, he told me about it because you know that first player's been chosen. He's your horse, so to speak, and he's the guy that get to play any amount of minutes, you know, out there on the floor. And there's no limitation. When coach decided I was going to be that guy, golf just went to the roof. You're going to make a five foot three, the guy the horse, you're going to screw
0: up the whole camp, the whole drafting process. So Muggsy mentioned the horse. Well, at Five Star, you had to play all your players at least half the game. But you could designate one player as the team's horse. And you could play him as much as possible. Most coaches pick a dominant big, like Patrick Ewing for this. So it made Wade's decision to choose Muggsy even more infuriating to Garf. Coach told me, hey, if
5: I can't pick who I want, we all going home. to so Golf he gave in. And of course, we
0: wind up winning it all. And I became the MVP of the of the tournament of the Week. Well, safe to say Muggsy's play saved the day for Coach Wade and changed Garf's tune with the stat line I'm still marveling over. What was it again, Muggsy? Oh, uh, I don't remember probably 888. Eight, eight, I don't know. Somewhere close to that. It's almost after the triple double, believe it or not. That's eight points, eight assists, and wait for it, eight steals. Yes, eight steals. Make a long story short, Muggsy Bogues turns out to be a super, a super. Even into his 80s, Garf couldn't forget the impact Muggsy made on the camp that week.
5: I'm so thankful I got an opportunity to kind of talk to Garf and hear his praises because he really, truly did not believe what Coach Wade was doing at the time, and for it all, the the Kempo Circle, and uh, he was just so tickled about it. He loved to tell that story. And uh, and I'm just so thankful that, you know, one time he called me the eighth wonder of the world.
4: The eighth wonder of the modern world. The
0: eighth wonder. I was just kinda, you know, really shocked to hear him say that. Muggsy's story is the perfect example of a player taking advantage of the five-star stage. This is way back before players could get discovered by a Google search and Garf's camp was the gateway to the next level. As Five Star entered into its golden age and television began taking over, a whole lot of talent was on the way, looking to follow this same blueprint to basketball stardom. On the next episode of the World of Five Star, you'll learn about a day in the life of a five-star camper like Metar Test. Hey campers, everybody up, everybody up. The on-court battles and Brotherhood formed on the blacktop between two unlikely college stars. I'm like,
4: that's my guy. And they're like,
0: what? That's your guy? How's that your guy? And the story behind how Grand Hill ended up choosing Coach K over my beloved North Carolina Tar Heels. The first time I saw him, I was with Howard. I am Tate Frazier, and this is the World of Five Star.